ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. How are you doing? And welcome, welcome back to you, stranger who suddenly appeared on the opposite side of the. There we go. Look at that. Now I'm switching it back better. around. Yeah, I joined at this you. side of the bed, Bill. Yeah, if I join the stream first, then I go to the left. But you did it this time. I was kind of last minute tonight. So, uh, how are you doing today? I am fine. Just so glad to have you back in the saddle. By the way, I don't know if you knew that there was a coup d'etat that happened in your absence. You are no longer in. You are out, baby. It's me and Maven. I love it. There's a lot of coup d'etats in your world, isn't there? Oh, yes. My my entire life is one big coup d'etat. What's the what's going on with your shirt there? That looks like Japanese. It is. It's actually uh, katakana, which is the language they use to write Bless you. foreign words in. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, that says... That's Wolverine. Can you guess what it says? Uh, I'm going to guess it says, uh, I have sharp fingernails. It says, Wolverine. Wolverine. The Wolverine. Yeah. Wolverine. Nice. He's famous even in Japan. Yeah. I, He's got uh, a lot of I Japanese connections, actually, if you follow the, the movies. Yeah, I don't I don't speak Japanese, nor do I, have I ever seen a Japanese connection in a Wolverine movie. So One more reason for the coup d'etat. Yeah, yeah. That's... <laughs> I love it. Life treating you good? Oh, yeah. Better than I deserve. And we've got such a great show tonight. But before we get to that, I want to know, is there anything that you want to say uh, before we get to the, the show? I'll just say I was in L.A. last week and uh, had a ton of fun, did a lot of cool things, met a bunch of listeners. Um, everybody just had the highest things to say about this show and about URFM and and uh, think the world of the content that you create and the product that we do here together. So just really? kudos the to you. The people you talked to mentioned me? They mentioned you specifically. Because the people yeah. I talk with don't mention you at all. <laughs> That's fine. Like, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Of course no. they mention you. Every, they yeah. love you. It's yeah, like yeah, I'm everybody sure, loves I'm sure they Raymond. Do. Everybody loves Bill Real. I'm sure they do. The The only thing I've got business-wise here is uh, last week or the week before you guys started a t-shirt contest. We've been talking behind the scenes about that. And uh, several ideas have come in, maybe seven or so, eight uh, t-shirts, I think, designs. Um, folks, we're going to kind of kick that a little further down the street. Um, but as soon as we have more uh, feedback with the three of us kind of talking together about how we want to handle these uh, we'll we'll let everyone know and apprise each of you, and there will be a at least a segment of an upcoming show where we uh, show those and uh, and show our decision on which T-shirt gets selected, uh, and we'll make a T-shirt for everybody here to to purchase. Yeah, I'm really excited about that, and I've seen some of the submissions. They look fantastic. What a talented audience we have! I know it's pretty amazing. I'm actually in love with several of them, so we'll have to see how this uh, pans out. And then only one other little thing is I'll put it in the in the comments here, but you guys can join the uh, Mormonism Live uh, mailing list, email list, 
And uh, I'll put that in the comments. Otherwise, RFM, I'll turn the time over to you, my friend. Okay. Well, we're very happy to have with us one of the authors, one of the three authors of a recently released book about Mormonism and Masonry called or titled Method Infinite. And then the subtitle I have to turn around to read Freemasonry and the Mormon Restoration. It's by Cheryl L. Bruno. She uses the middle initial because she's bucking for general authority. Joe Steve Swick III and Nicholas S. Litursky. So we weren't able to get uh, Joe or Nick on the show, but Cheryl Bruno has been more than kind enough to come on the show and share with us some of the great insights that she has in this wonderful book. Is she here? Let's do it. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> Hello. How are you doing, Cheryl? It's so exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, well, you're so welcome. You know, I've, I've been enjoying your book very much as I've been reading through it and learning a lot of things about masonry and a lot of things just about Mormon history as well. It's a it's a tour de force and it's 450 pages of text. That's before you even get to the the um, what the index and the, the bibliography. That's right. It's 531 pages, which is the same as the Book of Mormon. Holy. Did you do that on purpose? No, we discovered that later. Well, sometimes, as they say, a coincidence really is just a coincidence. Oh, you've got to include all the advertising at the back. Yeah. Right. Okay. Everything. Well, whatever you have to do to make it work, that's perfect. So this is Method Infinite. By the way, why the strange title? Oh, this comes from a quote in Edward Tulloch, um, Women of Mormondom. And it may even be a quote from Eliza R. Snow. We're not quite sure because he used a lot of Eliza R. Snow's wording in his book. Um, but the quote from Eliza R. Snow goes, um, there is method in Mormonism, method infinite. Mormonism is Masonic. That is a pretty good connection, you know between Mormonism and Masonry. And of course, there's the Heber C. Kimball quote about celestial Masonry being revealed in the temple by Joseph Smith. But it does strike me, we've got this really strange thing going on with Mormonism and Masonry. And one of the things is that by and large, we've lost the Masonic connections to Mormonism and to the LDS temple, which is of course part of Mormonism. And it's just a strange thing where uh, at the time that Joseph Smith restores or uh, creates however you want to look at it, the temple endowment. He is, he's a master Mason. I think they've got the biggest Masonic temple in Illinois, if not the world at the time. Is it about 5,000 men who are members of the Masonic temple in Nauvoo? No, um, it's about 1,500. Okay. So still big though, right? It's still like most of the Masonic lodges at the time had like 25, 30 people in them. Right. So massive, not as big as 5,000, but thank you for correcting that. So they got this huge um, Masonic temple membership. And now most of those people who are the men, at least, end up going through the temple, the, the LDS temple, I should say, and experiencing the temple endowment. And they can see readily the connections to Masonry, right? Exactly. Exactly. And then because of the way history plays out, we go from having a superabundance of Mormons who are familiar with Masonry and can see the connections in the temple endowment. And then we go into a period of about a hundred years after the death of Joseph Smith, when the Mormons hate the Masons and the Masons hate the Mormons, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, in the course of a hundred years, Mormons forget all their institutional knowledge about Masonry 
and they're left with the endowment and they've lost a lot of the keys to understanding it. Is that fair to say? Yes. One of the themes of masonry, in fact, is that which was lost. Uh, that they're searching for something that was lost. And um, we use that as a theme in the book as well, because we've lost a lot of the understanding of Masonry in Mormonism. We can't understand our own temple ceremony in many ways because we've lost the Masonic connection. You know, something that you were telling me on the phone earlier is really interesting here, which is you said that there are very few people who can actually see these connections based upon their their fields of study, because you can't be a Mason today and a member of the church today and know what the church is like today and know what Masonry is like today and be able to see these connections. You actually have to be very familiar with Mormonism as it was back in the early 19th century and masonry as it was back in the early 19th century to really appreciate these connections because both of them have changed enormously over time. Is that right? Exactly. Well, we're going to get into that tonight. I know you have a great analogy that you use and we've got the very first, um, I think that more of the second slide. Do you have that? uh, has to do with kryptonite, Maven. There we go. It is kryptonite. I know what that is. Yes, I wonder how many of people who are watching this show today know what kryptonite is. I thought that was a handful of Sally Chase's seer stones. No, it's not. Okay, okay, okay. Just please. in case. Bill, real. <laughs> Do you know what kryptonite is? Well, I know it is the uh, it's the one week. It's the Achilles heel of uh, of Superman. Right. So, I mean, in our culture right now, in our culture today, almost everyone will know when you say the word kryptonite, they will associate this with Superman because that's part of our culture. And we know this whether we have watched a Superman movie or not, because it's just floating around in our culture. And um, but I mean, back in the 19th century, if you said the word kryptonite, they wouldn't have had any idea what you're talking about. So I compare this to masonry because today we do not have that cultural understanding of masonry that they did in the 19th century. And so some of the words and some of the phrases that are used in Mormonism and in masonry, um, we just, they, they fly right by us because they're not in our cultural understanding anymore. So it would be as if in 100 years or 150 years, we were still had the word kryptonite, but we've lost all understanding or recognition or recollection about the Superman story. Exactly. Yeah. So can you tell us, this is very interesting to me as well, about the influences that Joseph Smith had on him, even early on of masonry. We're used to understanding, at least I have been, that Joseph Smith became a mason. He was raised to be a master mason on in one day, right? Mm-hmm. And shortly after that, he creates the Temple Endowment, which has a lot of connections with Masonry. And we'll get to that. But I was interested to learn from your book that actually everybody and their dog was talking about Masonry and knew about it and even knew the secret rituals going on in Masonic temples. How was that? That's right. So um, we one of our chapters early in the book talks about the William Morgan affair, which is a scandal that happened early on, uh, right in, in Joseph Smith's backyard. It was in Batavia, New York, very close to Palmyra. And um, this man, William Morgan, threatened to reveal Masonic secrets. And some of the Masons uh, kidnapped him, and he later disappeared and was assumed 
murdered by the Masons. And so this scared everyone, both Masons and non-Masons. It, it just scared everyone because they figured that these oaths that Masons had made, which before were seen to be very symbolic, now they're thinking, oh, you know, someone if someone reveals Masonic secrets, they're going to murder him. They're going to cut his throat. And um, they didn't think that that was right. So there was a huge backlash against Masonry in the area where Joseph Smith lived. And um, so there were lots of exposés that came out. And if you go to that next slide um, that I had after Kryptonite, um, they actually would go around in the neighborhoods where Joseph Smith lived and they would present these plays where um, actors would act out the Masonic ritual. And so people actually could see what happened in Masonic lodges. And so they're very familiar. Everyone was very familiar with what happened in Masonic lodges. It was in newspapers of the time. It was just all over the place. And so when Joseph Smith was a very young boy, he um, and everyone around him understood what um, all of the secrets um, as it were, of masonry. He had um, his doctors that worked on his leg operations were masonry, were masons. And um, the people who they were renting their house from were masons. And just there were masons all over the place. And his brother later became Hiram Smith, later became a mason. We believe his father, Joseph Smith Sr., was a mason. And so it was just ubiquitous all over the place. And we can't just look at Joseph Smith in the 1940 or 1840s and say that's when he was exposed to masonry. He was exposed to masonry from before he was even born. So here we have these are these are actors then who are portraying the rituals of the Masons, correct? Well, yes, it's an image of that. I'm not sure exactly what the image is, but um, but that's what I'm using to say. That right. these actors would come around and present the, the ritual. Right, because Masons wouldn't be allowing photographs to be taken inside their temple, right? No. And each of these gentlemen, except for the initiate, who's the one blindfolded and apparently with a nightshirt on, mm -hmm. they each have something wrapped around their waist. What is that? It's a cable toe. Oh, I'm sorry, their waist. All oh, the different the Masons. The, yes, sorry, the aprons. That's okay. Yes, they all have aprons. Aprons. And aprons are a part of the regalia of Masons. And there's a number of things that I think have sort of filtered into my head, Cheryl, as I have grown up in the church and tried to find out more about the church. It seems that the response of the church or church writers has gone from denying any connection between Mormonism and Masonry and I read a number of pieces like that and listened to audio tapes available, you know, a Deseret book. And then it went to sort of, okay, we're going to accept that there are certain elements from Masonry in Mormonism, but we're going to, uh, as the apologist would do, say that Joseph Smith took those and recontextualized them within his temple endowment. Okay, so having said that, I, I don't want to miss out on saying things like the square... I'll do that. The square, the compass, and the level. And sometimes I would get so involved with the square and the compass because those are very commonly understood to anybody who's been through a temple endowment in the LDS temple. But the level is also present, not only in the veil, but also in the temple garment, as well as the, um, the square and the compass. So all three things are there. There are certain hand grips, which are identical to what 
uh, we experience in the temple. And by the way, just so everybody knows, we're going to try and be somewhat sensitive to these things and not go into graphic detail about them because we do think it's important to treat with sacredness things that other people consider to be sacred and which I at one time considered to be sacred myself. But we want to be respectful to people's feelings. This may be more understandable to those who have been there and done that than to those who have not. But that's sort of the nature of things. By the way, can I just ask you about the skull sitting down there? Do you know anything about that skull? Yes, I mean, it uh, represents death. And we have in the ritual, we have Hiram Abiff, who is murdered or killed and then put placed in a grave. And so this kind of represents the, the mm. death of Hiram Abiff. I keep expecting one of these gentlemen to pick up the skull and start saying, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. But that's <laughs> not this skull. Okay, so can you tell me, though, about not only was Joseph Smith exposed to masonry, and everybody else in his society, pretty much. But also, masonry at the time of Joseph Smith was going through a lot of, what, variations, elaborations? Can you tell us about that? Yes. So um, they were uh, actually developing Masonic ritual at the time in the 19th century in the United States. And so we had this Egyptomania that was going on because Napoleon went over to Egypt. And so they were, everyone was really interested in Egyptian, um, ancient Egyptian. Um, so, so they started, um, some of the Masons would make Egyptian rituals. And if you'll go to the next slide that I had on there, um, there is, was also Native American rituals that were being developed. And so there are the three, um, the three basic Masonic rituals, but also then there are other rituals that um, were starting to be developed that men could go through to learn other things about um, other symbolic aspects of, of the Freemasonic craft. So this I thought was very interesting because we have this Native American connection in Mormonism as well. But this is exactly what Joseph Smith was doing as well. Um, and so Masons didn't see this as anything unusual for him to take and um, develop a ritual around a scriptural um, theme. You're muted. Thank you, because I, <laughs> I did that on purpose just to give you a chance to say that. <laughs> All our guests should be given that chance at yes. least once. No, I was noticing <laughs> the upper right. I was muted too. So. <laughs> I was covering for you. So in the upper right-hand corner, of the, what is this? Is it, what is this item? In the upper right-hand right like, No, the whole thing. It looks like a pouch of some sort. Oh, it's a, this is an apron, but it just has kind of a flap over it. Um, so... Yeah. Okay, so it's an apron, but in the upper right-hand corner is a hand clasp a hand that clasp. looks strangely familiar. Right, it is. And you don't have to say anything more about it unless you want to describe it within the context of masonry. You can say whatever you want to say about it, Cheryl. Well, I mean, this is what everybody wants to focus on because it's the most recognizable thing that we have in the Mormon temple that um, really relates to uh, Freemasonry. It's very, very similar. The hand clasps that we have and our Mormon temple are very, very similar to the ones in, in masonry. So everyone zeroes in on that. But that's not the most interesting thing about um, Mormonism and masonry. And that's why we wrote a whole entire book about it. And very, very little of the book is about these certain things that everybody wants to talk about in the temple. 
Right. And I'm only talking about them just to make sure because we have a rather large audience of all sorts of different levels of uh, knowledge. I think most of them, this is probably old school to them, but I don't want to leave anybody in the dust on that or overlook it. So we have this apron. Somebody made a comment about about aprons and men wearing aprons. I think that was said in jest. Let me just go ahead and add that the entire Masonic idea stems from, or at least traditionally, stems from uh, Solomon's temple and Masons are stone Masons. And they're the ones who are tasked usually with dressing the stones. And I don't know if they have to place them in the temple, but mainly they're the ones who are dressing the stones, which means uh, taking them and carving them and chipping away at them to get them to exactly the right size, correct? Yes. And so when you're doing that and you're chipping away at a stone in front of you all day and you got uh, splinters of stone flying off in all directions, you want to make sure that you've got a nice apron in front of you to, um, well, you know, to protect yourself. Right. So we, I mean, the whole Freemasonry comes from um, masonry um, as a craft, which started back in the Middle Ages, where they were actually uh, building these buildings and temples and they had to learn a certain craft and um, they did have certain ways to recognize who was um, who had been trained as a stonemason and who they could allow into their little groups um, and these were done by these different hand clasps you could recognize uh, what level of expertise another free ma- another mason had reached and gradually that became more symbolic. And so now we have Freemasonry, which is a more symbolic um, aspect of, of masonry. So we do still have aprons, but they're not, um, they're not working aprons, they're symbolic aprons. And if I can just go into this a little bit more detail, mainly because it's gonna be important later, it's very interesting in the rise of the guilds in the Middle Ages, and some of them are Masons, of course there are other guilds, but the Masons and other guilds, they have certain signs and tokens and secret names so that they can identify themselves when they go to another city and there's another guild over there, but they don't know me from anybody. So I can identify myself and the level of expertise I have achieved in masonry by giving them the name signs and tokens that pertain to that particular degree, correct? Yes, that's right. And so I see that someone, someone's asked the question that um, they wondered what the date of this apron is, and it is from the 1830s. So um, this is right about the time of Joseph Smith. Yes. And the reason for bringing all of this up is not only talk about this apron and the Native Americans on it, but also this idea that masonry was so much in flux and there was all these innovations going on and new forms being created with a whole lot of, um, uh, well, creativity. It's kind of like what was going on with Christianity and religion at the same time, I think. And Joseph Smith was a part of that, maybe in both areas. Yeah, definitely in both areas. So you've got certain, there are three levels, right, of being a Mason. There's apprentice, journeyman, and master Mason, right? So fellow craft, yeah. Entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master Mason. Okay, so entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master Mason. And if you're an apprentice, then you get certain signs and tokens or certain sign, token, and name that applies to that. If you're a fellow craft Mason, Mm -hmm, right? then you know what you had as an apprentice, but you get additional yeah. name signs and tokens that only right. the fellow craft knows. And additional oaths that are you taken. 
and oaths as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. And then if you become a master Mason, then you have everything that you learned as the uh, inner apprentice and the fellow craft, but now you get additional name, signs, tokens, and oaths. So you can identify yourself as a master Mason. So it's not just saying, Hey, I'm a member of your guild, but I'm also either, um, an entered apprentice, a fellow craft, or a master mason. So these are, this is my skill level, which I can demonstrate to you by my knowledge of these secret items, correct? That's right. And then, you know, it's important to understand that those three, that's kind of the terminal degree. Um, the third degree is um, uh, the end all be all of masonry, but then there are additional degrees that surround it. So people like to say, oh, you know, I'm a 32nd degree Mason. So that means they've gone through all these 32 degrees, but yet um, the, the master Mason is really um, the terminal degree. And then other ones are just additional, additional degrees that they. So they it would be almost be maybe like in karate where black belt is the terminal degree, but you can get different degrees of black belt above and beyond, but you're still mm-hmm. going to be a black belt or, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. If that's an okay analogy. Now, having set the the groundwork with that, can we talk about something that is really interesting and what I had always thought was unique to Mormonism, which is this idea of dispensationalism. In other words, that there has been a time, well, with Adam, for instance, when the true gospel was on the earth, and then there was, that was a dispensation because God had dispensed the gospel to mankind. And of course, they have it for a while and then they goof it up and then there's an apostasy. And the apostasy happens for a certain period of time until God gets around to once again restoring the truth that was had before. And then there's a second dispensation, right? Yes. And then there's another apostasy and then another dispensation. And we're up to around seven now. I think it's the official count. And this is supposed to be the last one. But we have all the series of apostasies and dispensations. And not only that in Mormonism, at the head of every dispensation, there is a named prophet, Adam being at the beginning and so on. It gets a little bit sketchy there in the middle, but Jesus Christ ends up coming in for number six and Joseph Smith, of course, for number seven. And Moses and Abraham and Noah, I think, are also in there as well as heads of different dispensations. Does that have any connection with masonry? Absolutely. So um, what I think is really interesting is this is Wikipedia with this slide that you're seeing right now. It's telling about the history of dispensationalism. You'll see that they do not mention um, uh, Mormonism at all in this history of dispensationalism. Wikipedia shows that modern dispensationalism started with um, John Nelson Darby in Ireland and England and uh, what it says, the 1830s. Um, but uh, it was introduced into the United States uh, by the Schofield Reference Bible in the 1850s. So this ignores Mormonism, which taught dispensationalism in the 1830s and 40s. And notably, um, it it ignores uh, Masonic dispensationalism, which was being hotly debated in the 1820s in upstate New York. So um, I think this is fascinating because uh, uh, the history of dispensationalism here um, is actually starting with Masonry. And so where, where Joseph Smith gets it from, um, it's right there in his, again, in his own backyard um, being talked about in the newspapers. And we quote some of these newspapers in our book uh, talking about dispensationalism and um, some of the 
correspondences that it has with Joseph Smith's dispensationalism. I have a couple of those quotes here. Is it okay if I read them or do you have them oh, in yeah, front of yeah. you, Cheryl? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, because if you, I, I actually typed them out of your book into the outline because I thought <laughs> okay. they were so important to have. Yeah. This first one's from page 13 of your book and more specifically is from a book called The Spirit of Masonry in Moral and Elucidatory Lecture by William Hutchinson. And this is what it says. It, state, it dates back to at least 1774 because that's when this book was published. So this is well in advance of Mormonism being established. Here's the quote, the notion of Masonic dispensationalism, including both apostasies and restorations, dated back at least to 1774 in this book, William Hutchinson's The Spirit of Masonry. That's from page 13. The second one is also from page 13. Unsurprisingly enough, it's the same page where you're talking about this. And this is the quote from your book, when false Freemasonry caused a degeneration a restoration and new dispensation was invariably needed. As a result, Freemasonry had gone through at least five grand periods, each presided over by the ancient patriarchs and prophets, considered grand masters of Masonry in their day. That seems pretty similar to Mormonism, except maybe for the difference in seven dispensations in Mormonism versus five in Masonry. What do you think? So yeah, doesn't this sound so familiar as a Mormon? We see we we almost shocked by by seeing this uh, similarity here. And uh, when you're used to just uh, starting with the 1840s temple and seeing similarities in Mormonism and Masonry, when you go all the way back that early to see this similarity, it's it's really almost shocking. Well, it kind of was to me because even though I've tried to study here and there. Really, my, my knowledge about Masonry and Mormonism has to do with uh, the square, the compass, and uh, some hand grips and some aprons, right? Right. But this book just opened so many more things to my, my mind. So there's dispensationalism. And also, we want to talk here for a bit about a famous statement by Joseph Smith when he was describing the Book of Mormon. And he didn't talk about the Book of Mormon a lot, even when he was asked to, at least about the translation process. But he did say that the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion. And I, I can't imagine there's a member of the church out there who's been a member for any period of time who hasn't heard this quote. And I heard it over and over mm -hmm. as a member. And my understanding, by the way, I've never been a Mason, okay? But my understanding is just to look at or learn about the way an arch is created and the keystone being the top stone of the arch and the keystone keeps all the other stones in the arch in place in the absence of cement. Is that part correct? Right. So it's the weight bearing part of that arch. Uh, it's the most important part of the arch is that one stone. Let's um, take, let's get that picture of the, of the arch. There you go. And you see right up at the top, there's the keystone. And if you didn't have that keystone, which bears that pressure, then all of the other stones would crumble. They wouldn't be as stable as they are. And so this is very important to Masons. It's so important that they um, then use it symbolically uh, to talk about, much as the keystone is used in Mormonism, as we talk about something as a keystone, it's very important. It's something that everything else depends on. Now, if you want to look at that arch, 
What's fascinating to me, and this is a Masonic representation. It looks to a Mormon, it looks very Mormon, doesn't it? But it is almost this, everything about that looks Mormon to me. It looks like oh, the yes, state flag of Utah. But this is no, but this is a Masonic representation. And you have the keystone up there at the top. And what is directly over, over the keystone? It looks like a book. It's the book of the law. So what Masons uh, associate with a keystone is the book of the law, which is the scriptures. And so when Joseph Smith says the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion, this is very Masonic. This is a, a Masonic symbol that he is appropriating into Mormonism. And, you know, when I look at this, there's all sorts of, well, in this, there aren't all sorts, but there are a number of other elements to it. First off, at the very bottom, it says holiness to the Lord. And that is something that appears on the outside of every LDS temple. Yes. Why is that there? So that is um, a, a motto, a Masonic motto, which also is used in Mormonism. We have the sun, moon, and stars, which we know from Mormonism as our degrees of glory. We have the beehive, which is a very important symbol in Utah and also in the Book of Mormon. Also, that's used uh, quite frequently in masonry. You have the all-seeing eye at the top. You have the book of the law. You have the keystone. So um, it's such an interesting uh, thing to me is that, oh, there we go. The Book of Mormon is a keystone. Um, so when you have one or two of these things that are similar, you may say, oh, that's just maybe a coincidence that they're using that in Mormonism and masonry. But when you have all of these things used together in exactly the same way, then that's uh, very important to look at. Yeah, and what really caught my attention is that it appears that the entirety of this depiction is almost meant to focus on that beehive. I mean, every element has its importance, but it's like it's all framing that rather large representation of a beehive. And a beehive, of course, is very important to Mormons. And in fact, it gets special mention among the animals and things that the Jaredites brought with them Yes, to the new world. Yes, uh, Deseret. And I was telling um, RFM before we started that my daughter is named Deseret. I think it's a very important, uh, this, and this is far before I, my daughter is now in her 30s. So this was far before I started studying masonry, um, but I still recognized this as an important part of the Book of Mormon, an important symbol. You know? Has your daughter had occasion to thank you for giving her that name, Cheryl? <laughs> uh, she goes by Desi. <laughs> I thought maybe Desi. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like Desi Arnaz. That was actually Desi Arnaz's real name. Deseret. Deseret. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm the source no. of all kinds of misinformation here. <laughs> but this is a fascinating, fascinating thing. And so it goes beyond this, this keystone because there's a very prominent legend within masonry and is legend an okay word to use should i use myth or story or legend is great yeah okay a legend involving a keystone and a story about some people who back after what was it after the the solomon's temple was destroyed and so then there's the captivity which we're all familiar with because that's where the book of mormon opens up and there's captivity for about 70 years in Babylon. Eventually, the Babylonians are taken over by the Persians and the Syrians. And they say, hey, you guys, you're great. You can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. And three, I think it's three. It's always three, right? Three men 
are tasked with going out there to the Temple Mount and clearing off the rubbish because you got to clear it out before you can rebuild the temple, right? And then they find something unusual. Can you tell us about that legend, Cheryl? So um, this is a, a talking about Enoch's um, gold plate, right? So yes. um, they they dig down into um, a subterranean vault, and we have th- nine sets of arches. If you go to the pictures that we have of the arches, there we go. Um, there's several different pictures of this in masonry, and you can see that then as they go down each um, subsequent arch gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And when they get to the ninth arch, there is a gold plate uh, found. And upon engraven upon the gold plate is the sacred name of deity. So um, if you, I think it's the next slide where I and have. By the way, Cheryl, before we leave the slide, my mm-hmm. understanding of the story, and I know there's variations of every story in Mormon history, as well as in, you know, Masonic history, I'm sure. But isn't the thing that they stumbled across initially, didn't they find out that it was a stone, which they used a crowbar to to move, and they found out that it was the keystone of an arch? Yes, yes. So right at the very top is – and this um, brings back a lot of – Memories of the story told about how Joseph Smith found the golden plates because he pries up this stone and underneath it he finds the gold plate. It's very similar. Um, so the the keystone is pried up, and you'll see at the top that that very first arch as they pry up the keystone, then they get down into the the next arch. Right, and, and down, everything down, is. Down, down. I was going to say everything is subterranean and then you go down for nine arches and then there's a vault. And apparently the purpose of all these arches is to protect and support this vault, which has this very sacred gold plate on it. Now, this is a triangular gold plate, right? Yes. And on the plate is written the name of God, which uh, is the Tetragrammaton Mm -hmm. in Hebrew. So the four letters which are associated in Hebrew thought with the name of God, it was not allowed to be uttered under penalty of death unless you're the high priest on Yom Kippur. And you get to do it once in the Holy of Holies a year, correct? Yes. Okay. So having said this much, um, we've got this vault. And I know this isn't Joseph Smith yet, okay? But he pries up this stone in a hill, okay? And he, he finds these the set of gold plates is what he says upon which is written the word of God. But later on, later on in Utah, Brigham Young, it's actually 1877. It's not long before Brigham Young passes away. But he wants to relate to the crowd in a conference a story that he says he heard from Oliver Cowdery. And Oliver Cowdery has been gone, uh, dead by that point for, what, 30 years, I would think. So he's not around to contradict Brigham if he would dare to anyway. But this is a story that Brigham Young related. And I think everybody's heard of this. But once again, when I'm starting to learn about masonry, all of a sudden these stories that I've heard many, many times take on new significance to me. And this is the one where on June 17th, 1877, Brigham Young talks about Oliver Cowdery. And I'm going to skip down to the salient part, which is where Brigham Young says, when Joseph got the plates, the angel instructed him to carry them back to the hill Camorra, which he did. Oliver says, that's Oliver Cowdery, says that when Joseph and Oliver went there, the hill opened 
and they walked into a cave in which there was a large and spacious room. He says he did not think at the time whether they had the light of the sun or artificial light, but that it was just as light as day. They laid the plates on a table. It was a large table that stood in the room. So here they are putting the gold plates on a table in this subterranean chamber that ends up opening up for them so that they can get access to it. It was a large table that stood in the room. Under this, ta under this table, there was a pile of plates as much as two feet high. And there were altogether in this room more plates than probably many wagon loads. They were piled up in the corners and along the walls. The first time they went there, the sword of Laban hung upon the wall. But when they went again, so this presupposes more than one visit, doesn't it? But when they went again, it had been taken down and laid upon the table across the gold plates. It was unsheathed and on it was written these words. This sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Now, I have heard that story forever, and not having any background in masonry, I, I just took it sort of at face value. But what would a mason make of that story, Cheryl? Yes, I mean, there's so many Masonic elements in that story, so many. And it has to do with the subterranean passage, cave. And there's also, in masonry, there's an image of a sword lying across the um, Book of the Law. There he is? Yes, yes, I should have... I've uh, gotten you the picture of that too, but um, yes, there's so many things that a Mason, again, it's like the kryptonite, you know, a Mason will read this and see so many uh, Masonic elements in this. And I think Brigham Young did this quite often. If I'm recalling correctly, the same story of this cavern was also told by Porter Rockwell, right? Um, I remember there being at least one other person who related this story. Yeah, so um, so it, it was uh, floating around in Mormonism, and uh, many times uh, Brigham Young would refer to things that come straight straight out of Masonic legend. Right, and so the thing that's important to me about what Brigham Young said is I could be looking at you and looking at these diagrams and saying, okay, well, a keystone in the Book of Mormon and gold plate versus gold plates and these nine chambers and everything. And, you know, maybe you got something, maybe you don't, Cheryl. Uh, but I think it makes it even more significant that it appears that Brigham Young saw it exactly the way that you see it too. And he supplies the element of the subterranean chamber. Right. And so um, we, we show this in the book. I think you'll find it very fascinating, those of you who purchase the book and read it. Um, that I and this is what I find is interesting, too, is even if these stories didn't have um, a Masonic correspondence at the beginning, um, people, the surrounding people, as they told these stories over and over again, added more Masonic elements to them. You know, when the Book of Mormon was unearthed, um, the stories that are told about it have just these Masonic elements that are added as they're told in later um, recount recountings. Does someone have a music box? <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> Not on my end. Okay, we're all looking at you, Maven. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I want to talk about the name of God because the name of God is on this gold plate. And I'm learning that Mason in Masonry, this name of God or the secret word is of paramount importance. Can you tell us about that? 
Uh, yeah, the tetragrammaton on the gold plate, and you can go to the next slide, I think, that um, will show. Um, I actually have the, um, one of these. Uh, these are often used in Masonic lodges, and it's a golden triangle that you can hold in your hand. It's about as big as my palm, and um, it um, has these little um, engraven parts where you'll have in the middle there, you see the tetragrammaton, and um, on the sides um, is the Masonic cipher, the Royal Arch cipher. And um, so it it is there to recall that, um, that legend of Enoch um, finding the gold plate. And um, there's just a lot of... Um, correspondence with Mormonism there because we know that Joseph Smith was quite fascinated with Enoch. He liked to even call himself by the name of Enoch and identify himself with Enoch. Um, so here we have Enoch and his golden plate that he hit up and Joseph Smith and his golden plates. And um, so it's just it's a it's a cool correspondence that's happening quite early. In yeah, and for those of you, uh, for those of the listeners who don't know, um, back in 1981, we got a new version the Church provided of the Doctrine and Covenants. Prior to that, prior to that, uh, it still contained the secret names or code names that different members of the Church had, and it would have them, I think, in parentheses after their name. And Joseph Smith had several code names, but one of the most prominent of his code names was Enoch. Yeah. So that's another way in which he, and then he takes this one verse about Enoch in the Joseph Smith translation, and he totally blows up it up into two lengthy chapters. So yeah, there's obviously a great fascination on the part of Joseph Smith with Enoch and the legend of Enoch. So we've got the Tetragrammaton, which you, you've mentioned, and Let's talk about um, masonry and what it is in their ritual with the name of God that they try and inculcate in their members. Do they ever give the name of God to their members? So um, parts in the ritual, they are given a name which uh, symbolizes the name of God, but it's not the actual name of God. It's, um, it's a substitute word that they're given and um, what it does is it it gives them the task that now a Freemason is tasked to go and find the true name of God, which is for him, it's um, coming into the presence of God. And so um, the Masonic rite is um, supposed to show the initiate how to come into the presence of God. And it's very symbolic that way. And um in Mormonism, we have the same thing in the temple, is that it's, it is a um, celestial ascent. Um, and many writers, especially apologetic writers, have talked about celestial ascent in the temple. And they say that this is what's special about the Mormon temple that is not found in Freemasonry. Well, it's not found as much in the Freemasonry that they are seeing now in the 21st century um, but it was very important in the 19th century and still today in um, in the ritual uh, is that there is a celestial ascent. We have all kinds of symbols in masonry that show 
the ascent from ladders and, you know, stairs going up. And that is basically what um, Masons are taught is that they are coming into the presence of God. And so it's the same thing in the temple that Joseph Smith brought this um, kind of symbol in and he wanted to make it literal. He wanted people to actually come into the presence of God as he did in his first vision. And my okay. feeling is that I feel that the first vision, we know uh, the first vision was not used as a foundational story in Mormonism early, the 1820s, it wasn't told, um, but it becomes more important later on. And I think that that's when he was um, developing this temple ritual that he um, he also developed the story of his first vision where he came into the presence of God. Hmm. Now, there's something that you wrote in your book which absolutely blew my mind. It has to do with the name of God. But in order to set the stage for why it blew my mind, I've got to tell you a little bit about my background. And this is what I'm talking about, is that back in the 1990s, I read an article by Truman Madsen. And what he was doing in this article was it was clear that he, it was clear to me anyway, that what he was trying to do was he was trying to insinuate the idea that the second name of the Melchizedek priesthood, uh, let's, let's go to the second name of the Melchizedek priesthood first. We're all trying to be very careful. I'm trying to be careful as well. But the second name of the Melchizedek priesthood is what the entire temple endowment structure is predicated on. In other words, this is the most sacred part of the entire temple endowment because every other name, every other token, every other sign you get from the people who are leading the endowment. But when it comes to the second name of the Melchizedek priesthood, this is not received by any mortal being. It's not received by an angel. It can be received only by from God through the veil. And he does it upon what used to be the five points of fellowship. And we'll get to that as well here in a minute. But what I understood then and what I learned from Truman Madsen, which he confirmed that I, I, I was correct, is that what he's insinuating, and it makes sense, is that the second name of the Melchizedek priesthood is supposed to be the name of God. And it's a funny thing because in the structure of the temple endowment, we have no problem with the first name of the Aaronic priesthood being a name. It's called a name. They're all called names, right? It's our new name. And the second name of the Aaronic priesthood is our regular name. And the third, no, the first name of the Melchizedek priesthood now relates to the Savior. And we have no problem recognizing that as a name. But when we get to that fourth name, it resists understanding, at least by contemporary non-Masons, as being a name because it's long, it's involved, and it sounds more like a description or a blessing than any kind of name that we're used to. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay, so having that understanding coming to your book, I find out that Masons commonly had a name that they thought was the name of God. Now, it may have been a substitute name, right? Because obviously they don't have the name. They're trying to present the Mason with the idea that you need to find the name yourself. But here's a substitute name that we're going to use in place of the name of God. Just sort of maybe like the ancient Jews used to use Adonai. 
instead of trying to pronounce the tetragrammaton, which will get you stoned on the spot, right? So you've got a substitute name like Adonai for Yahweh. Don't throw that stone at me. And the Masons also had a substitute word for the name of God. And what was that that name? Well, one of them they use is the Mahabone, which is interpreted as marrow in the bone. Okay, that's what blew my mind. Could you say that again? So they've got a name. It's a substitute name for God. The Masons did, even in Joseph Smith's time, correct? Yes, this is in Joseph Smith's time. And, and it's M-A-H-A-B-O-N-E, Mahabone. One of the names, yes. One of the names that's given is Mahabone, which is marrow in the bone. Okay, that blew my mind. Because now I'm, I'm linking that up with what I already understand to be the name of God in the temple as the second name of the Melchizedek priesthood, which has that exact phrase as part of it. It's the second phrase in the name of God, marrow in the bones. Mm -hmm. So what I can see, even though sometimes we have to speculate, but let's back up from speculation for a second. It doesn't require any speculation to understand the connection between this Masonic substitute name, Maha bone, which they translate as marrow in the bones and the LDS temple endowment, which is designed to give people apparently the name of God. And one of those phrases out of basically three, I think, is marrow in the bones. So that's not speculation. I think that is ironclad. That's more than a coincidence in my mind. And yet I can envision Joseph Smith as part of his prophetic calling of restoring not only Christianity, but also restoring apostate masonry yes is by taking this name and saying okay that's not all of it it's it's right as far as it goes but now i'm going to elaborate upon it and incorporate it in this much longer phrase and i could picture joseph smith as believing that that is the entire name of god and it's been restored now and it's given to members but only through the veil after they've demonstrated their familiarity and knowledge of all the underlying name signs and tokens what do you think about that, Cheryl? Well, I think the, all three of us authors believe that Joseph Smith felt that he had found the true name of God. That's what he was looking for. And there is a certain um, place in the book where it talks about um, an incident that happened where we feel he had discovered what he thought was the true name of God. Now, I don't feel that we still have this in the church today. I feel like this has actually been lost again. Um, whatever he found that he thought was the true name of God, I don't think we have that anymore. Um, it's been lost as, as many of the Masonic connections uh, that were in the 19th century have, have been lost to us today. Um, so Can I bring up something now? It might be later on in the outline, but it just presents itself naturally right now. Because there's this whole idea of the name of God and specifically the name of Christ. Now, we would figure the name of Christ would be Jesus Christ, right? Okay. And yet there's a strange passage, which is very, very important in Mormonism, especially if you're an apostle and giving your apostolic witness. And it's section 107, verse 23. Okay. And... It talks about the 12 traveling counselors are called to be the 12 apostles or special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. And 
you know, the apostles right now in the LDS church, they will testify right and left about Jesus Christ himself and that they're special witnesses of Jesus Christ. But when they're pushed a little bit. RFM, just just FYI, yeah. you're breaking up a bunch on my end. Am I? Can we find um, out anybody in the comments if they're hearing too. me break up too? Uh, do you hear me breaking up, Cheryl? I do not. You sound quite clear to me. Okay. Maybe okay. it's just me on my end. So sorry about that. Please start over then. That's okay. Were. I hope it is. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, apostles today, they, they bear witness of Jesus Christ. They bear the special witness of Jesus Christ. But when they're pushed on that a little bit, then they'll retreat to this passage. Elder Oaks has done this at least once where he says, well, we're supposed to be, we bear witness not of Jesus Christ, but we're special witnesses of the name of Christ. And then they try and say, well, my, my question is, well, what does that mean to be a special witness of the name of Christ? Don't we all know that already? Why do we have to have a special witness and what would that be? And then they fall back and Elder Oak says, which means to be a witness of his priesthood and of his plan and of his church. But none of that really seems like being a witness of the name of Christ. And so when I read your book, it occurred to me that maybe this sounds like an apostle saying, I am a special witness of the name of Christ, but he's forgotten what the name is. And so he can't come up with it. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a large theme of our book is that Joseph Smith was um, not only because as Mormons, we know that he thought that Christianity had become apostate and that he was restoring true Christianity. But we don't realize that he felt the same about Masonry. He thought that Masonry had become apostate. And this was many Masonic writers had written about this in his uh, time. And in some of the books that we quote, um, we, we learned that uh, Masonic authors thought that Masonry needed to be restored and a restorer would come and, and restore true Masonry to the earth. Joseph Smith thought that that's what he was doing. As well as restoring true Christianity, he is restoring true Masonry. And I feel that that comes with um, discovering the true name of God and being able to give that to his followers so that they can come into God's presence. And that is sort of what um, is all about being an apostle, right? Is is knowing that true name and being able to, to lead the followers to the presence of God. You're muted. <laughs> you're, you're muted. You're muted, RFM. I meant to do that. So it sounds like they've lost their way at least Masonically speaking. They're supposed to be special witnesses of the name, but they've lost the name. Well, we have lost so much about Masonry. Um, I mean, this might be a good time to go into the five points of fellowship um, because for me, this is a really important um, step for me in um, understanding how important Masonry was in Mormonism. I went through the temple in, let's see, 1981, uh, right before a mission. And at that time, uh, they were doing the five points of fellowship through the veil. So when you were told this name of God, you, you um, were in this position right here that's being shown on the screen of five points of fellowship. You see that they, their feet are touching, their knees are touching, breast to breast. And then you have an arm on the back and the mouth to the ear. And, um, you know, this is, it had no meaning to me at all. Um, we aren't explained what this meaning is in modern day Mormonism. And now, of course, we have taken this five points of fellowship out 
because it seems uncomfortable um, to our modern day sensibilities to have this close um, embrace. Uh, we, we don't feel comfortable with this, especially right. when it's an old man and a younger woman. You know. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and um, when I went through in 79, of course, they discontinued this in 1990, as we know, but well, at least as I know and you know, and anybody who was at the temple before then or who has read about it. But yeah, the five points of fellowship, that's exactly what it was said in the temple endowment. It didn't just say, assume this posture with right. the person on the other side representing God on the other side of the veil. But it says, it will be received upon the five points of fellowship through the veil. And so the, the exact way of describing it in Masonry is the exact way they described it in Mormonism, where they say foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back, mouth to ear. This is in Masonry. And when I discovered that this had a meaning in Masonry, it was huge for me. This was huge. Um, and let me just tell you a little bit about what the meaning is in Masonry. Um, the first point of fellowship, which is the foot to foot, it says requires you to never hesitate to go out of your way to be of assistance to a brother that needs your assistance. It's the first step in directly building fellowship. So the second one is the knee to knee. The second point to bow the knee in prayer. Freemasons are told to always remember that whenever their own wisdom and strength proves inadequate, they can gain access to an unlimited supply of both through the power of prayer. This point also requires that anytime you turn to the deity in prayer, you are to remember your brother's needs. So this is this it's it's creating this fellowship um, between you and the person that you are embracing. The third point of fellowship requires that whenever a brother informs you that he's telling you something in confidence, you have an obligation to keep that confidence inviolate within your breast. The fourth is an admonition to stretch out a hand and assist brothers who are fallen. And this is um, harking back to Hiram Abiff, where they are bringing him up out of the grave. He has fallen to the grave and they bring him up out of the grave upon the five points of fellowship. Um, and the fifth point requires you to whisper good counsel to help your brother reform and warn him of approaching danger, including behavior that is leading him down a path which is dangerous to his Masonic progress. However, it is very clear that you are to do that in the most tender manner and only if you are endeavoring to aid in his reformation. So all of this is, is um, building up this fellowship. And it, it was so meaningful to me. Um, something that we have completely lost within Mormonism is the, the meaning behind this sacred embrace. And I feel like that that's one of the reasons why it was taken out of the ceremony, because we just didn't understand what it meant and what was the importance of it. Right. Because when I went to the temple in 79 and every time thereafter until it was removed in 1990, I have no idea what they're talking about. There's no explanation given. There's no common understanding with me. It's just the five points of fellowship. And it says foot to foot, knee to knee, et cetera. But it doesn't have any. Uh, explanation as to the symbolism behind it. Right. And so um, this is something that every Mason and probably every person that went through the early temple endowment would have understood. And so, became, I mean, it just it makes it so it's not that uncomfortable to you. It's not like some old man is touching you. It's, it's a symbolic gesture. It's something very important that um, now is, has become 
uncomfortable. So would it be correct to say that when Masons perform this or and continue to perform it, I would presume that it's always with men. Yes. Yes. So they never have the potential of having an uncomfortable situation for a man embracing a woman on the five points of fellowship. Right. Right. Okay. So I find that really interesting, mainly because something that was full of meaning to the original Mormons who went through the LDS Temple Endowment because they understood all of this, or at least the majority of them did, I would think, since they're Masons themselves. And then that that understanding gets lost. So now it's just the five points of fellowship. So that gets removed from the temple. But basically the action is still the same. It's just not upon the five points of fellowship. So I guess that they leave enough room for the Holy Ghost now. <laughs> for the Book of Mormon to be in between you. <laughs> right. Oh, can you tell us really brief, briefly about so mote it be? What does that mean? And why is it important here? So this is just a, Masonic, a signal Masonic phrase. It's like saying amen, but they would say so mote it be. Um, and uh, it was found often in some of the rituals and also some of the um, writings. Um, uh, there's an early, early Masonic um, poem almost that um, has um, so mote it be uh, in it. And um, we find this uh, written in Mormonism in several places. And later on, it's crossed out. And uh, they put um, sub other substitutes because now it's um, it's got a, a connotation that they don't want to to continue. Well, one of those was in the Book of Abraham, correct? In mm -hmm. the explanations to facsimile number two, the hypocephalus. Right, right. And this is this is the hypocephalus. It's not exactly necessarily figure three. I think it was down. It's hang on a second. Let me find my own here. Okay, time for scripture chase. Yeah. So I always lost that. I'm so close. Nope, somebody else already found it. Here it is. I think it was down on figure 11. Because figure 11, the way it is now, says, also, if the world can find out these numbers, so let it be, period, so it be. amen, period. That's how it reads now. Is that the way it always read? No, it said, so mode it be. So mode it be, yeah. And okay. um, interestingly, um, this is used in Wicca now because they also um, draw upon Freemasonry for some of their ritual. And so a lot of times you'll hear, so mode it be, and you think witchcraft. That's right. I think I have heard that somewhere. It may have been in an old Betty Davis movie or something where they're doing all this witchcraft stuff, and it's so mode it be, so mm -hmm. mode it be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was like something about Harvest Home. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. But it was some of her later work. I think it was back in the 60s, early 70s. I love Betty Davis. Just This just wasn't a great movie. Uh, so we got that So Moted B, which is interesting. Now, we have to go back to Hiram Abiff because he is really a central character in Masonic legend. Is that right? Yes. Can you tell us the, the story about Hiram Abiff and how it was he met his demise? So um, Hiram Abiff was um, the, the primary builder of the Temple of Solomon. And there were three, uh, there was Hiram Abiff, there was Hiram of Tyre, who was also a Mason, and um, King Solomon. The three of them 
were said to have each had part of the sacred name, the divine name of God. So each had like a syllable. And so, um, so the, uh, some of the Masons who were working on the temple wanted to get this sacred name earlier than what they were supposed to do. And so because they they're not, because I'm sorry, because Hiram Biff, he's a master Mason, right? Yes. yes. And these other three guys, they're lower Masons. They don't right. have, they haven't earned the, the knowledge of the keys and the names and the signs and everything that the master Mason Hiram Biff has, right? That's right. That's and they right. want to get it without earning it. Right. So they go to Hiram and Biff to try to get it. And uh, he will not give them his um, portion of the name. And so each of the three of them hits him with one of their working tools. And then Hiram and Biff is killed and they take him and they go bury him. And now part of the sacred name has been lost. And so now this is that which is lost and um we can never regain it because Hiram Abiff is now in his grave. He was and the only one who had this portion of the name. That's right. So each of those three people had one portion of the name. And now that one of them is gone, we can never recover the name. So um, oh, before you go on, and this will give you a break here, but it's interesting to me because this story about Hiram Abiff actually represents this entire idea of rather than reveal the name, signs, and tokens that have been bestowed upon you, you would suffer your life to be taken. And that's exactly what he did, correct? Mm -hmm. yes. And I'm sure he was a hero for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he kept his covenants. Very good. And how on earth was that name found again, or that part of the name? Well, I mean, there's so many legends that go um, around this. One of them that's interesting is that they they go and find Hiram Biff's grave and they try to raise him up out of the grave upon the five points of fellowship and try to get him to the deceased Hiram Biff to tell them the, the name or the, the syllable that he knows. So they dig up his body. Yes. And then they embrace it on the five points of fellowship. fellowship. Right. Right. And is there a story that says that somehow the body of Hiram Abiff whispered it to the person who was trying to get it? I mean, that's what they try. That's what they're trying to do. And so that's what in the ritual you have that happening. Yeah. I think that's fascinating to me, not only because when we were in the temple doing the five points of fellowship, not only does it have this very ennobling kind of aspect that you were talking about each symbol representing but also, in some way, it, it represents the taking Hiram Abiff uh, deceased and holding him in the five points of fellowship in order to get this name of God whispered to you. Right. So one of the things that I like to tell everybody is that um, Joseph Smith was really an, an amazing ritualist, um, whether he... Um, received revelation from God to create this temple ritual or not, he still um, put a lot of himself into it. And the ritual that he created was amazing. And one of the things that I like um, is that there are three, the three great knocks um, happen in masonry. But um, one of the places that you have the knocks is at the door of the lodge when you're first going into the lodge. So, um, and the three great knocks are um, death, right? Um, so when you are entering into masonry, it's like you kind of 
die to your old self and you're now coming into a newness of life like the Christian does at baptism. So, um, but what Joseph Smith did was he put those three great knocks at the end of the ritual where you are now entering into the presence of God. So you, um, you die and then you are resurrected and come into the presence of God. And I just think that that's fascinating. And I love the change in the, that he made there and, and how important it is to the ritual to see those knocks at that particular place. That is interesting. By the way, is there any relationship between these literal knocks and the three blows that were inflicted on yes, Hiram yes. Abiff to kill him? Mm-hmm. Right, right, yes. Do you know what, you said they each use their own tool. Um, mm-hmm. Do they all hit him in the head or different parts of the body? Do you different know that? Different parts, yeah. I think it's it's a little bit different um, in the different tellings. Um, but um, like when was a setting mall, and I, I can't remember all of the, the different um, implements that were used, but yeah. Well, let me bring this up because I don't think it's in your book, but you know, I start reading your book and I start watching General Conference and things are going to happen. And so in the, I think it was the last session, it was, and President Nelson was talking and he introduces to the audience this uh, this new video that they've got out on the Book of Mormon. And it's the visit of Jesus to the Nephites described in 3 Nephi 11 and they have him coming down out of heaven and saying hello to everybody. Um but it really struck me that once I'm starting to look at things a little bit more like a Mason, because you're helping to educate me, I'm looking at Jesus and I'm thinking, okay, here comes Jesus out of heaven. Now he's had a voice, the voice of God actually declared to everybody three times. The last time they understand it, right? Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You think that would be enough to establish your bona fides if you're Jesus Christ. But no, he comes down out of heaven. He's a glorious being, comes down out of heaven, descends all the way down, comes to the temple. You think that would be enough to establish your bona fides? No, he shows the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. You would think that would be enough. But no, now's the interesting thing. He invites every single person up to feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And when he does that, and I'm watching the video, I'm thinking... He's showing them his tokens. What do you think about that idea? Oh, yeah. Um, this is another kryptonite thing. that It's um, something that Masons will look at, and it will be very um, uh, just uh, it will hit them in a way that it doesn't, doesn't hit anyone else. Um, but just having these tokens and having the touching and having the grips, you know, this is this is all um, going to uh, affect Freemasons in a way that uh, you just can't understand if you haven't been through their certain rituals. So. Right. And he shows up at the temple, which, of course, to Mormons yes. have a certain meaning, but to a Mason would have a different meaning, although related. Right. So oh. a few... If you have that picture of the the Nephite temple, this is interesting. I do want to get to that temple and let's go ahead and put it up there. But I want to add this thought that also came to me because there's also this other aspect in Mormonism. It's speculation. It doesn't have any. Well, it kind of has a basis in the scriptures is that Jesus gets crucified. Obviously, he gets these wounds. He's resurrected. But now he still has the wounds. Right. And why is that when Alma tells us that, you know, we'll be perfected? in our resurrected body. And then there's the speculative um, idea 
that I think all of us have heard is that Jesus keeps these signs and tokens. He keeps these signs in his body as symbols like of his glory or what he accomplished. He does that intentionally. So we have a being now who uh, basically, I don't want to say violates, but let's say supersedes the normal order of resurrection in order to keep his token so he can prove to people who he is. Apparently, that's why. So I wanted to say that. And here's the temple. This isn't the temple that Jesus showed up at. That was the temple at Zarahemla. But I, yeah, that couldn't have been this temple. So second Nephi chapter five, we've got an actual picture here. It's black and white because they didn't have color back then. But (laughs) (laughs) thank you. But uh, yeah, we, we read in the book of Mormon that Nephi and company build a temple after the manner of Solomon. And this is the depiction. Yes. Can I say um, three things about that first before you go? Yes. This has always been a problem in the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's just like one on top of a host of them. But it raises so many problems. The first thing is that it's 2 Nephi chapter 5. And it's early on. Lehi has just died. The Lamanites and the Nephites have split. So however many men they had, which wasn't that many to begin with, get cut somewhere in half. And now the Nephites only have what's left. So really, when you see these four people, including Nephi in this picture, that's the entire work crew that they have available to build this Temple of Solomon. So the question is, how on earth do they do this? So that's one thing. And how do they build all these stones? Is that you, Bill? Yeah, yeah. I just want to add, you know, apologists would come in and say there were already a lot of people here who assimilated with this small family, but how hard would it be to get a bunch of strangers to build your religious edifice? It, it, again, just that, that doesn't really work. That's not rational or logical. Yeah. And fortunately they were all Masons, so they could cut and dress the stones and somebody's got to transport these things for crying out loud. Yeah. It, so it's, it's this it's, massive, it's, massive uh, project. But you know, if Nephi can build a transoceanic vessel, what is a temple of Solomon when it comes down to it? Yeah. I mean, but plus, it's a, not all things are possible. Right. So you've got, it's a problem when you take the Book of Mormon literally. And not only that, you've got that problem. You've also got the problem of having another temple outside of the one at Jerusalem. That's a problem that uh, apologists have to try and respond to. And the third problem I think about the temple is that our understanding would be, as a non-Mason, well, they have to continue to follow the law of Moses with all its myriad sacrifices and observances and ablutions and everything that go on at the temple. Now, in the Book of Mormon, there is a token nod to the fact, and I'll put fact in words and quotation marks, that they are following the law of Moses, but they do it with an eye toward the coming of Christ because they recognize the symbolism. But there's never any place in the narrative where anything going on at the temple relating to the law of Moses happens. There's no, we went up to sacrifice, you know, uh, make sacrifice at the temple. There's none of that anywhere in the Book of Mormon. There's just there, there's just this strange, very early depiction of a building of Solomon's temple not long after they get there. And so now, having said all of that, and the problems that that creates when taken literally, what might a Mason make of this symbolically? Yes, so um, this is what Cheryl Bruno makes of it. Um, I, I see this temple, this Solomonic temple, and what it is is it's not, um, it is not a depiction of Solomon's temple. It's a depiction of the Masonic version of Solomon's temple. 
because the Masonic version of Solomon's Temple is not does not include animal sacrifices. It does not. It includes a, a ritual that's uh, very different. And the Mormon Temple is also a Masonic version of Solomon's Temple. It's not. It's not a replication of Solomon's Temple. So, so these these are Masonic temples that we're seeing in the Book of Mormon and that we're seeing in early Mormonism. Um, and so what I, I see that Dan Vogel is on. Hi, Dan. I'm going to talk a little bit about him. Um, he sees the Book of Mormon as being anti-Masonic. And um, the reason why he does see this as being in the anti-Masonic book is because Joseph Smith talks about secret combinations and kind of uh, downgrades the, the secret combinations as being um, bad, um, bad masonry. Um, but we see that in the Book of Mormon, there is apostate masonry, which is a secret combinations. And we also see that there is true masonry, pure masonry. And this is where we see the pure masonry is when they're building this temple. These are the true masons, the pure masons. And so um, this is what Joseph Smith is seeing as um, something to emulate. Um, uh, yes, um, the white and delights and masons even. Mm -hmm. right. Should we work in uh, Cain declaring himself to be Master Mahan at this point, which would be in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis, which probably happened in December of 1830 through March of 1831, so pretty early on? Sure. I mean, that's why you've already done half of it, so go ahead. <laughs> well, it sounds like when he says Master Mahan, it sounds kind of like Master Mason. But it's a slight corruption of Master Mason. Yes, it is. And what, what significance do you attach to that? So that's, I mean, Clinton Bartholomew has done quite a bit of work on this, and I think he's right on, he's spot on on this, um, that we are talking about Master Mason, but we're not talking about a pure form of Master Mason. We're talking about a corruption of, of Master Mason. So Mahan is the one that is... Um, doing it not the way it's, it should be done, you know, using his power, using, you know, um, uh, secret combinations in a, in a bad way. Right. And this, this leads us nicely into this question, which I think is probably a perennial question, uh, probably among Jews, Muslims, probably, I know Christians, because it has to do with the story about Cain and Abel. And Cain offers a sacrifice of, well, grain or things that are raised from the ground. Mm -hmm. And Abel offers a sacrifice of, I think it's a sheep. It was something that used to be alive before they sacrificed it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a blood sacrifice, in other words. And Joseph Smith had mentioned in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, it's page, uh, whatever page, it is. oh, it's page 58 or documented history of the church. Volume two, pages four through 24, you'll find it in there somewhere. But it's from a discourse from 1834 that Joseph Smith gave. And he answered this question this way, because the perennial question is, what is God's problem? I mean, why doesn't he like this sacrifice, but not that sacrifice? What is it that makes him reject Cain's sacrifice? Because there's nothing in the text in Genesis that would tell us why, just that God rejects it, right? And what Joseph Smith said, which many of it you may know, is that, and I'm not going to read this whole thing, I think, but basically what he says is the reason that Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's accepted is because Abel's involved 
the shedding of blood and similitude of Jesus Christ. Actually, this is going to be important enough. I will read it. Um, By faith in this atonement or plan of redemption, Abel offered to God a sacrifice that was accepted, which was the firstlings of his flock. Cain offered of the fruit of the ground. It was not accepted because he could not do it in faith. He could have no faith or could not exercise faith contrary to the plan of heaven. It must be shedding the blood of the only begotten to atone for man. For this was the plan of redemption. Without the shedding of blood was no remission. And as the sacrifice was instituted for a type by which man was to discern the great sacrifice, which God had prepared to offer a sacrifice contrary to that, like Cain did, no faith could be exercised because redemption was not purchased in that way, nor the power of atonement instituted after that order. Consequently, Cain could have no faith, etc. And I was interested when I was reading your book to find something very similar to that, that was mentioned by... Oh, it was in the Antiquities of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have that or would you like me to read it? It's in my uh, my. Yeah, go outline. ahead. I don't have it right in front of me. Go ahead. Okay. And it's uh, page 133 of your book. Uh, so this is from Oliver. Is that George Oliver? Yes. Okay. Who wrote? Um, Antiquities. Antiquities of Freemasonry. So he's, was he spilling the beans on Freemasonry as well? Was, he was this an expose? Um, no, he was a Mason. Okay. Well, this is what he writes, quote, hence Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable than that of Cain. So he's going to tackle the same question. And his answer is because it was an animal sacrifice and offered conformably to the divine appointment, while that of Cain being unbloody was an abomination because it did not contain any reference to the atonement of Christ. So whether it's a coincidence or more, uh, it appears that George Oliver, in his book, Antiquities of Freemasonry, which I would expect was representative of beliefs of Freemasons at the time, had the same explanation for why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's not accepted, as Joseph Smith described in 1834 in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Yes, and many of the things that Joseph Smith wrote and did um, correspond with George Oliver's uh, Antiquities of Freemasonry. But um, the thing that, and and I believe Dan will probably jump in and say that um, some Christian um, um, uh, writers had also um, made the same similar points. But the thing that um, I see is that Masons at the time were very into the Old Testament, but they were into a specific kind of Old Testament. They were into this Christian view of the Old Testament. So they liked to um, try to relate everything to Jesus Christ that happened. So they, they see the Christian view of Enoch. They see the Christian view of Abraham, you know. And so um, so that's very fascinating to, to read masonry um as they explain the old testament because they see the christian view and this is what joseph smith was doing was he was reading christianity into many things in the old testament and um that is very very masonic thing to do okay well before we skip over it there's a very unusual section in the doctrine and covenants section 129 which talks about um, the method of identifying different messengers, three different kinds of messengers, three different, three different methods, but they all involve shaking hands. 
And you had mentioned to me that you felt that Masons would look at this very differently because frankly, this is a, this is a revelation that has never made any sense to me and to lots of people because the basic idea is you've got three kinds of people talked about three kinds of messengers, right? The good kind are resurrected beings who have a body of flesh and bones so they can shake your hand, right? You've got good spirits, but they're not resurrected yet. And then you've got evil spirits, which are always going to be spirits because they're never going to be resurrected because they never had a body. So really the problem is with the two kinds of spirits, there's good spirits and bad spirits. And what is it? It's when a messenger comes saying he has a messenger from God, get offer him your hand, request him to shake hands with you. So the revelation says, if he be an angel, he will do so. You'll feel his hand. If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory, for that's the only way he can appear because he doesn't have a body. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive. But he will still deliver his message. And finally, if it's the devil appearing as an angel of light, you ask him to shake his hands. He'll offer you his hand, but you won't feel anything. You may therefore detect him. Now, there's a there's a gaping weakness in this problem, which is Satan and his angels presumably would know about this. And so it seems obvious to me that if a devil appeared to you and you asked him to shake hands, you just say, nope, sorry, I can't do that. Right. So you'd palm yourself off as a good spirit and not an evil spirit. So it doesn't make sense, at least not to me, if we're trying to make sense out of this, just that as it's written. But you were saying that a Mason would look at this differently as well. Oh, yeah. So this is a very strange thing if you just look this at this as a Mormon. It's very, very strange and it's almost incomprehensible. Somebody named Walt just made a comment that said, Mormonism is Masonry divorced from its meaning and explanation. Yes, that is so true because here we have a, an example of this. Um, now, Masons are going to look at this and immediately recognize it because the Masons often identify themselves to other Masons by giving these hand clasps that they've, they've received in the ritual. So that's their method of identification. And so Joseph Smith's instruction on how to identify an angel by hand clasp would be so familiar to a Mason. That would be um, so very symbolic. And um so I have a, there's an insertion in Joseph Smith's journal for uh, the date of February 9th, 1843. And it talks about um, someone named um, um, uh, Nye, Jonathan Nye. And um, it's, it reads, conversation with Master Nye and W.W. Phelps went to Keokuk. And then he, this, there's similar notes for the same day that say um, Parley P. Pratt and others explained to Parley P. Pratt and others about classes of angels and devils. And so we don't know, we know that, um, we don't know if that's happening at exactly the same time of day. Um, it's not clear if Nye was present for this, for Joseph Smith's remarks on these classes of spirits. But if he was, Jonathan Nye was um, a Mason and he was a notable ritualist himself. And if he was in attendance at the time, he would have been absolutely stunned to see this Masonic tradition expressed in Mormonism. And, and he might have seen this borrowing as like an arrogant, like overreach that Joseph Smith was, was doing. And this marks the time when 
Jonathan Nye and Joseph Smith split ways. Before that, they were working together. They were trying to um, establish Freemasonry in Illinois. And after that, they split apart. Joseph Smith starts calling him an adulterer. And soon after that, um, Jonathan Nye dies under suspicious circumstances. And it's a, it's a whole big brouhaha. But I find it's very fascinating that this happens right around the time when Joseph Smith explains this, um, this incomprehensible um, way of identifying angels that um, to Masons, it's going to be meaningful. Yeah, and to make the record clear, Section 129 in the introduction is said to have been given on February 9th, 1843. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. the same year, at least, yeah. that you're talking same about. Same day, this. yeah. Same day. Oh, same day. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's very, very interesting. Was there anything more you wanted to say about that? We've got about five other things to touch on, which we'll do briefly before the end, and then we'll take some phone calls. No, go go ahead. Let's try to finish the end. Okay. Something that really surprised me had to do with a connection with Section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So that's really early on. And those of you who are super familiar with your Doctrine and Covenants will know that that is, I'm just going to read the introduction to this, okay? Uh, first off, it's it's April 1829. So this is pretty early on in the history of the church. It's before the church has been organized. It's probably somewhere, I don't know, somewhere during the, the translation of the Book of Mormon, I would expect. But revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Oliver Cowdery, the not-prophet, at Harmony, Pennsylvania, April 1829, when they inquired through the Urim and Thummim as to whether John, the beloved disciple, tarried in the flesh or had died. Now, here's the important part. The revelation is a translated version of the record made on parchment by John and hidden up by himself. So this is what Joseph Smith says he's translating through his Urim and Thummim is a parchment from John that was hidden up apparently in the old world somewhere. And Joseph Smith is now remote viewing and reading it from wherever it's buried in its location. Now, tell me about whether that sounds familiar in Masonry. Yes, um, John, uh, there are two Johns in Masonry, uh, John the Baptist and John this evangelist. And um, they are both celebrated in Masonic thought. There are feast days uh, to the Saints John. And so they're just, um, I don't know if I have a lot to say about this, but they're very important in Masonic thought. And so um, the fact that Joseph Smith seized upon um, the Gospel of John and and um, many things he talks about John, I think getting the priesthood at 15 days old or something like that. Eight um, days old, I think, from an angel. Old, yeah, yeah. And but um, he has he he likes to take these um, these traditions and just make legends um, surrounding them, just as as Masons would do. Um, and I just find that fascinating that he's he's very interested in the same things that Masons are interested in. The paragraph about this that caught my eye from your book on page 138 that I typed into the outline says this, the Royal Arch degree is believed to have been fashioned from a tale told by the ancient Greek historian Philostorgius, and my apologies if I mispronounce that word, in his account, when the Roman Emperor Julian 
ordered the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem. A cavern was found built into the rock of the foundation. So here we're back to that idea of the cavern underneath the, the mount of the temple. But it goes on to say one of the workmen was lowered down with a long rope. So he's lowered down into this cavern, right? When he was pulled up, he had recovered a scroll containing the gospel of John. So Joseph Smith is recovering the same kinds of things that um, are prophesied in, in uh, masonry that will that have happened or that will happen. Joseph Smith um, talks about having done that himself. Yes, and you know it's significant, I think, 1829. It's hard to get much earlier on in the history of the church than that, unless you're getting into treasure digs, right? But 1829, very early, the church has not even been established yet. That won't happen for another year until April of 1830. So very early on, they, we, we're having interesting connections here uh, that are going on in church history. And then I was surprised to find out from talking with you on the phone. I mean, let me back up and talk about priesthood in the LDS church. We have in the LDS church what I had thought was a unique view of priesthood and that there are two priesthoods, a lesser and a greater, and the lesser is called the Aaronic priesthood, and the greater is called the Melchizedek priesthood, and that's also from section 107, verses 1 and 2. But you told me that that is not unique to Mormonism. Is that right? And this actually blew me away, too. I was very blown away to see that uh, Masons have an Aaronic priesthood and a Melchizedek priesthood. That's just um, that was amazing to me. I because I too thought that that was very original to Mormonism, and to see that that was those names of those two different priesthoods were Masonic. That was incredible. And I followed up that question with you by asking, well, does uh, Masonry have a bunch of priesthoods and just two of them happen to be called Aaronic and Melchizedek? But you said, no, those are the two priesthoods in Masonry. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's go on to degrees of glory because everybody in Mormonism knows about the degrees of glory. They know what they are. They know it can be found in Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which was received by Joseph Smith on February 16th, 1832. And... Uh, does that have any relationship with masonry? So this is also something that Christian commentators at the time, I think, um, uh, um, addressed. But uh, interesting, here's George Oliver again, and he says, if an inspired apostle speaks of a third heaven, of the righteous differing from each other in glory as one star differs from another, if the plural number be commonly used by Christ and his apostles, when speaking of place of supreme bliss, and if the Savior himself should acknowledge that heaven contains many mansions, then we may also conclude that there are many heavens. So, so there are, as there are many heavens, so there are also degrees of reward proportioned to the measure of man's faith and obedience. So you have these three degrees of glory also talked about in George Oliver's uh, writings. And you're muted again. <laughs> Sitting here looking at, I, once again, I'm sorry, I'm sitting here looking at my um, uh, my outline where I've put this down. I was watching you read that, and I was saying, does he actually say three degrees? But no, he does say a third heaven, and he's basically reasoning his way to it as a mason from biblical verses, mm -hmm. especially in the New Testament. And George Oliver, once again, who wrote this, was a mason, 
And he's writing in a very famous book about masonry, correct? That would have been available in Joseph Smith's time. Right. I want to just go to section 76 for just a second, if I can. I wasn't planning on doing this, but when you were reading that again, as to how uh, George Oliver representing at least his branch of masonry came to this, it sounded very similar to the way Joseph Smith came to it. We understand it was part of the Joseph Smith translation, but um, this is a long section introduction. But what it does say, okay, it appeared self-evident from what truths were left in the Bible, which had had a lot of plain and precious things taken away. It appeared self-evident from what truths were left that if God rewarded everyone according to the deeds done in the body, the term heaven as intended for the saints eternal home must include more kingdoms than one. Accordingly, while translating St. John's gospel, myself and Elder Rigdon saw the following vision. And that's where they come up with the three degrees of glory. So I think that's George very Oliver's, interesting. George Oliver's um, wording here. So there are also degrees of reward. And that's just um, very much similar to how Joseph Smith described it. And it's really interesting to me that the way that Mormonism, at least the way I've understood Mormonism is, is that we get to section 76. And then afterwards, there are certain passages from the New Testament that get used as proof texts in order to support it. And basically everything that George Oliver says in this paragraph are the proof texts that Mormons have used to support this biblically. There are uh, their heavens, right? Plural heavens. That's what he means when he says plural states of bliss. I'm too excited. I'm mispronouncing my words. But there are heavens. Heavens is commonly talked about as a plural in the Bible. There's the, the third. Hang on a second. Let me check it out. And I'll try not to mute myself. There's. Paul speaking of the third heaven, which I think is 2 Corinthians 12, 3, though I could be mistaken. But there's the talk about, you know, I knew one in Christ above 13 or however many years ago it was. Uh, caught up into the third heaven where he heard unspeakable things which are unspeakable, unspeakable things which are not lawful to utter. I'm going from memory here. I think that's correct. <laughs> but, but that's what he's referring to right there when he says, if an inspired apostle speaks of the third heaven, this is George Oliver. Right. right of the righteous differing from each other in glory as one star differs from another. And there he's sort of going into first Corinthians 15, I think. And when speaking of places of supreme bliss, there's a plural number commonly used. We talked about that. That's heavens. And if the savior himself should acknowledge that heaven contains many mansions and that's John 14. Well, it's in John 14. Is it two, you know, in my father's house are many mansions. If we're not sorry, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So what he's using is all the the standard Mormon proof text to support Section 76. And putting support, it together in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. exactly. Thank you for putting a, a period on that. I could have gone all night without ever reaching <laughs> a, a period. But I think that's interesting. And then we get to washings and anointings. And washings and anointings, which we're familiar with as initiatory ordinances in the temple. And as part of that, let me see how I can put this. You are washed and anointed in a very symbolic way. And that has to do with washing and anointing. It's sort of a duplicative ordinance in that you're washed in, in terms of water is placed upon certain areas of your body and certain words of blessing, if I can put it that way, are spoken. And then 
oil is placed on the same places of the body. And I think with the same words spoken when, when it's done again. Is that your recollection? I mean, it's Cheryl? a little different. Actually, it's a little different for women than men. Uh, I don't know if you realize that, but no, I had no idea. Yes. It, well, now it's no longer done the same way. Um, that's been removed. But um, in the past, when you and I first went through, um, and I didn't realize this for a long time, but it is a little bit different for, for women than men. So I don't know um, what exactly the, the male um, version is. But yes, but they, but they, the certain parts of the body are anointed. And um, I think for women, it's different. The water um, washing is, uh, the wording is different than the, the oil anointing. So, All right. Well, I want to quote from a book. There's a number of different volumes that you cite to of books about Freemasonry, most of them by Masons or exposés, which also probably would have been done by Masons, but uh, available in Joseph Smith's day. This one is by a fellow named Bernard. David and Bernard was, yes, he was, this was an expose. He was and it, it is called The Mysteries of Godliness. That's the title of his expose of Masonry. Yeah. Was this available in Joseph Smith's day too? Yes. And in fact, there were Mormons who um, used to travel. It was a W.W. Um, I think it was W.W. Phelps was used to go around with. Um, yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was, but but there were Mormons that used to go around with David Bernard and um, uh, help him in his anti-Masonic efforts. So. Oh, really? Well, now that we've established that, here's the quote, which you quote in page 190 of your book. And this has to do with washings um, and anointings, or at least anointings, okay, within a Masonic context. And he says, the most puissant. Now, that's capitalized, so it sounds like an office. And puissant, I recognize maybe as a French word, which would mean warlike. Powerful. Powerful. Okay, so the most puissant then takes the ewer, and a ewer is a pitcher, right? Yes. Okay, then takes the ewer filled with perfumed ointment, which is what uh, was used originally, perfumed ointment, and anoints his head. This is a person who's receiving this ritual in masonry, right? Yes. And anoints his head, eyes, mouth, heart, the tip of his right ear, interesting detail, strangely familiar, hand and foot, and says, you are now, my dear brother, received a member of our society. So this is an initiatory ritual, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. And many people who have received this in the temple will recognize this and it will seem very familiar to them. Yes. And he goes on to say, you will, uh, it said, you are now my dear brother, received a member of our society. You will recollect to live up to the precepts of it. And also remember that those parts of your body, which have the greatest power of assisting you in good or evil, have this day been made holy. So very interesting that this is an initiatory ritual within masonry. And I think the washings and anointings are called initiatory ordinances Mm -hmm. in the LDS context, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very, very interesting. We've got time, I think, for one more, at least the last one I put in here. 
which has to do with the raising and lowering of hands. Now, those who have been to the temple will know that at a certain part in the endowment, which once again has to do with the second token of the Melchizedek priesthood, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, there's a raising and lowering of hands, which used to be accompanied by three words in the Adamic language, but which have since been taken out of Adamic and just been put into the regular English translation. Um, but it is repeated again in the prayer circle. So there's two places where this happens, praying associated with the raising and the lowering of hands, correct? Yes. Is that like anything in masonry? Yes, um, and this is um, also associated with, I want to talk about the Masonic sign of distress because it's um, associated with the Masonic sign of distress, which also um, has to do with the ritual around Hiram of Biff's body. But um, Masons are given, during their uh, ritual, they're given a sign of distress that they can use, uh, which where they raise and lower their hands and say, um, uh Oh, Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? And this is supposed to signal to any Mason who's around them that they need help. And if the Masons around them are able to assist them without, you know, um, putting their own life in danger, that they're supposed to rush to their aid. And um, so this was used in Mormonism uh, once in... Um, by the Danites, it was used in the Danites like during that um, election at Gallatin when they were in a big fight and they were in trouble. Somebody gave a signal of distress. And, also, and this would have been in 1838, just for yes. history buffs out there. And then also when Joseph Smith um, uh, died at Carthage, he was said to have um, to have uttered those the first part of that, oh, Lord, my God, while he was raising his hands. And um, now we don't really know what was in Joseph Smith's mind as he did this. So some people say, well, he was just praying. Um, but the interesting thing is that every Mormon who wrote about that following the incident, following the martyrdom, all of the Mormons wrote about that, talking about how it was the Masonic sign of distress. So his plural wives, um, his one of his plural wives wrote, an account and said that he gave the Masonic sign of distress. John D. Lee in his writings said that Joseph Smith gave the Masonic sign of distress. So every Mormon who was writing about that felt that that's what he was doing. And the most interesting thing to me was that um, when the two who were left in the jail, um, this was John Taylor and Willard Richards, Willard Richards. Um, so they're left in the jail and John Taylor is, um, incapacitated under the bed, Willard Richards pulls him out and takes him to another room, covers him with a mattress. And we don't realize this, but he then raised and lowered his hands three times and said some wording, um, some blessing um, and implication to um, the father to keep John Taylor safe while he then went outside. So um, this is fascinating to me that he, this is a very Masonic action that he did um, right, um, right after Joseph Smith had done virtually the same thing. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, and this is the first time I've heard this, is that Willard Richards himself, after repositioning John Taylor in the mattress, Willard Richards raised his own hands yes. three times. He wasn't raising John Taylor's hands for him. No, no, no. His, his, own, his own hands, hands and lowering yes. them three times. Yes. 
and he was giving the admonition. Was it to the jailer or to whom to? No, just to God, because it was only him and Jesus and John Taylor in the room then at the time. You said the father and I was taking you literally and I wasn't sure. Okay. So God to God, to keep John Taylor safe. Yes. Because it was too late for Hiram and Joseph. Yes. So fascinating. You raise up um, this issue in 1838 of the election at Gallatin in Missouri, which was a big deal. And typically what I remember from that as uh, a member of the church and what I was taught by the church, or at least Essentials in Church History by Joseph Fielding Smith, is the, the Mormons went there to vote and the Missourians who were not Mormons tried to prohibit them from voting it's always the Mormons who are getting the short end of the stick in this. They're never the aggressors, at least yeah. according to um, the official LDS history. And a big fight broke out. And this was something that caused um, the Gentiles to get even madder at the Mormons, even though the Mormons weren't to blame. But you're adding in this additional element about uh, a distress call, a Masonic distress call being given. Yes. And so one of the men who was in that fight gave the distress call and John D. Lee later talks about that and how, you know, when he saw that he immediately rushed into the fray. So it's I'm remembering now reading that now that you're saying that, right. So it was one of the Mormons who's getting the kicked out of him uh, at Gallatin and he does the Masonic distress call. Oh Lord, my yeah, God. Is there no it was like you, you put your hand by the ear or something, but no, no, no. I remember because what you had written. Okay. I'm so sorry. I'm a bad student. But what you had written was, is that the um, the Danites, the Danites had come up with their own distress signal. Right. And I'm going to take this out of my ear right now, because what it was, uh, was taking your hand like this with your thumb out. Okay. And you're not taking your thumb across your throat because that's not a distress signal. What you're doing is you're taking it here by the right side of the head and putting it right up there to the right ear. Right. And that yes. was the Danite distress signal yes. that um, or, Orrin Porter Rockwell said he saw another of the Mormons give. And so he was in the fight as if Orrin Porter Rockwell ever needed a distress signal to get in a fray. Yeah, but I thought it was John D. Lee. But um, Oh, maybe it was John D. Lee then. I'm sorry. Did I make up the Orrin Porter Rockwell? Maybe I did. I thought you had said it and I was following suit. But regardless, uh, if it's John D. Lee, it's John D. Lee. So... <laughs> So fascinating, not only that, but also this idea that, you know, they're in Gallatin, they're not doing the Masonic distress signal. They're doing the modified so, version of a distress yeah. signal that was used by the Danites. Mm -hmm. right. And there's so much more that we could talk about, but we've already been going at this for almost two hours. We've got to save time for people to call in and ask questions. Cheryl, before we go to callers, is there anything else that you had wanted to say in conclusion to your thoughts tonight? Well, I mean, I just want to point out that um, there are so many correspondences here um, in when you look at Masonry and Mormonism together. Um, sometimes you might see like, oh, they both have a beehive. That's just a coincidence. Or, you know, there's uh, this or that coincidence. But when you see so many, so many things that are similar in both traditions, then that's when you really realize that there was an influence, that there was a great influence of, of Masonry and Mormonism. And I don't feel like that our book uh, is faith-destroying, that you can read this as a good member of the church and uh, that you don't have to be afraid of connecting Masonry with Mormonism, that you can see it as um, something that enhanced 
uh, what Joseph Smith was trying to do. And um, I really feel that you can read our book with that um, point of view. You can really read it um, with both points of view um, and come out with something that will, will really be valuable. So I hope that people find it interesting. Well, I have found it very interesting and learned so much that I had no idea of before reading it. So I'm very grateful for your book and all the time and effort you put into writing it along with your two co-authors. Uh, I encourage anybody uh, who hasn't gotten this book, get it. Where would you think they could most easily uh, order this? I know I asked you that question uh, a while yes. back before I got it. You said Coford you Books? Could, yes, you can easily get it on Amazon, but um, if you buy it directly from Coford Books, you'll get it very quickly and um, they'll be quite um, pleased to have your order. So just go to Coford Books uh, website and they will they have it for sale there. Fantastic. All right. Are you ready for some phone calls, Cheryl? Yes. Are we ready for that, Bill? Yeah, I think we are. Just really quickly, If uh, by the way, mind-blowing today in terms of the things you guys cover. These are things I never was aware of. Uh, um, we've done some work in the past. I just wanted to put this up here. If people listen to today's episode and they wanted to kind of dive into other parts of masonry, there's other things that we cover, not part of this discussion. Uh, but I did a conversation with a gentleman. I can't remember what name he went under, but he was sort of anonymous. Uh, Mormon discussion 363, signs, tokens, and penalties. Uh, I, I think it allows people to kind of continue the idea of the connection between mis, uh, masonry and Mormonism. Um, but that's the only thing I had. So folks, there is that if they, they want to continue kind of learning. Uh, otherwise, the calls, we've got a few calls. The first one I think is uh, Aaron. Aaron, are you there? Yes. All right. Can I, you hear that? Can you hear me? You guys hear that too? Yes. Good. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead and continue, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live. I, I've been uh, been commenting under George Washington. Hey, Duke. That's my name. I use. Um, I'm. Uh, I've been raised to the sublime degree of a master mason, and I am a 32nd degree Scottish Rite mason. Uh, so this has been fascinating. I listened to, uh, backyard professors series on this. Cheryl, I bought your book. Uh, it's amazing and I really appreciate it. One of the things, uh, that I wondered is if there is a good distinction between the idea of Joseph Smith being a York Rite Mason as opposed to Blue Lodge Masonry. And I know that can get a little muddled for those that don't work in masonry. I'm actually a Scottish Rite Mason, and so some of those things do come from the York Rite. Do you feel like those um, nuances were as accepted or as understood in uh, general society as, say, the Blue Lodge? So um, we know that Joseph Smith had the Blue Lodge degrees, which are the just the three, the first three degrees um, of entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason. But um, also we feel that he was very um, taken with um, Royal Arch Masonry. And we see a lot of, we don't um, yeah. know that he ever um, what, uh, participated in Royal Arch Masonry, but he did have, um, there were Masons in Nauvoo who were Royal Arch Masons. And Joseph Smith seemed to be very taken with the principles of Royal Arch Masonry. So we talk about that a lot in the book of how, how that connects. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. And, and also people like wonderful. to say that Joseph Smith was a 32nd oh. degree Mason and he was not. Um, he did, he was not involved in Scottish Rite at all. 
Right. Is that right. helpful? Aaron? I, I, I had heard that and I, I had read. Yes, that's very helpful. I had read a little article about the irregularities in the Nauvoo Lodge as well and how uh, they kind of cooked their books, essentially, that they made him a Mason before they had their charter, which is in Masonry kind of a no-no, uh, which just shows that they have always been kind of sketchy. Anyway, thank you so much for the show. Wonderful. Cool. Thank by, you the way, by the way, um, that also raises an issue that we talked about, and maybe it fits in here, which is I had heard that the reason the Masons hated the Mormons so much uh, over time was because, number one, the Mormons stole their signs and their rituals, and number two, because uh, the Mormons allowed women in to the Masonic version of a, an all-male kind of fraternity, and only the males could get this uh, uh, ritual. So that's what I heard. What's the truth about that, do you think, Cheryl? So, yeah, we've really dug into that. Um, and we know what the problems were because the Grand Lodge of Illinois um, had written down what their problems were with, Mormon, with uh, the Mormon Masons. And we have also other lodges in the state that in their minutes talk about what the Mormons were doing wrong. And they never say anything about, um, oh, they were making women Masons. Actually, this was happening in Masonry, and it was um, it was not a, um, they didn't have difficulty with um, having women um, lodges. Um, the co-masonry was was starting to be founded at the time, so um, that wasn't a problem. And they didn't um, have a problem with Joseph Smith making ritual either. What their problem was is that the Mormons were making all these, um, like they had, like generally the, the Masonic lodges would meet like once a month and maybe they would um, make one or two Masons um, that month. And then the next, they would take a long time to participate, to go through all the degrees. But Mormons were just raising these Masons like crazy. Every day they met almost every day of the week and made like five, masons in a day which you weren't supposed to do and so that's why they ended up with you know a couple of thousand um masons and they were overrunning the rest of illinois masonry and it was almost the same um problem with um when they were worried about the political influence that masons were having or that mormons were having they also were having this influence in illinois masonry where they were overrunning the lodge and they were now becoming very powerful and taking over things. And that's what um, the worry was. That's what the problem was. Yeah, it's, it sounded to me like what the Mormons were doing with Masons back then was like what the Mormons ended up doing with the Boy Scouts and Eagle Scouts in my lifetime, which is they're making Eagle Scouts like hell isn't having any, regardless of the time requirements, regardless of, you know, right. what you're supposed to accomplish. You right. just made... And it's usually the parents doing it anyway. And we're going to lower that standard so we can have as many Eagle Scouts as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's fascinating to me. So I appreciate your correcting that misapprehension on my part. Uh, any other callers, Bill? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the name here is going to be Evan. Is that right? Caller, can uh, you hear me? Steven. Steven, sorry. Go ahead, my yeah. friend. You're on Mormonism Steven. Live. Uh, yes, this is just a quick question for RFM. Uh, in your episode, The Temple and Me, you mentioned the idea of doing a movie review of the Temple's endowment ceremony. Is that still something you'd want to do? Um, 
it seems like this episode might give you even more material to work with. And I would personally find it very helpful to go through uh, piece by piece of the endowment ceremony and get the commentary and maybe integrate some of the information we've heard today. Thank you. Hey, Stephen, thank you. It sounded like a great idea when I came up with it. I, I just keep having so many things that I have to do. Uh, but I like the idea of doing a movie review of the temple. It was even better when we had the Maytag repair man playing Peter. That was huge. That made every Mormon feel good. Or at least the WKRP guy. I think everybody knows who I'm talking about. Do you know who I'm talking about? Do you know who I'm talking about, Bill? You don't, do. you don't know who I'm talking about? I, you have to I, be Maytag repair guy. <laughs> It's 1979. It's November. I'm at the MTC. I'm going for the first time to the Provo Temple. By the way, there was a show that was very popular on, popular at the time on TV, uh, called WKRP in Cincinnati. It was about a radio station. Now, I didn't watch this very much. I may have had dance class that night or something, but everybody knew about this. And we also knew that Gordon Jump, who played, was he the owner of the station? Something like that. Gordon Jump uh, was a Mormon. We all knew that. Of course, we also knew that Steve Martin was a Mormon. But in this case with Gordon Jump, it was actually true. And so this was a huge source of uh, pride for Mormons to have a Mormon on a hit show on TV. I go to the temple for the first time. I'm in the sacred precinct. I'm going through the temple endowment. And Peter, James, and John show up. And who the heck should be Peter? <laughs> Ta-da! Gordon Jump! Ta-da. <laughs> that was a that was quite a moment for me. Uh, hmm. So I can't remember why we're talking about Gordon Jump. Why are we talking uh, well, about Evan, Gordon Evan said something about doing a doing a movie or something. Doing oh, a, that's why. That's why. I'm sorry. Review. Oh, and by that's the way, I, it was either James or John who was playing him. Sorry, my friend. Who was also Stuart Peterson, who was the guy who played Joseph Smith in that 1976 version that the church did of the first vision. So it was like old home week. Not to mention several of the people who played Satan were very recognizable names. Were they? Because I had not been a member that long. But yeah, I remember there's a guy who was playing Satan who had a total goatee thing. Well, there's Spencer Palmer and who played the minister, the Protestant minister. Yes. And uh, he was, I think, a BYU professor or BYU guy. Was he? And, and then there was Michael Ballum removed, who huh? played Satan. Um, not Was that in the 90s? Um, but he was also a, a, a well-known Mormon name. So. Uh, you're talking about Balaam? Yes. Michael Balaam? Michael Balaam, yeah. Is it Balaam? That's okay. how I pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, well, the priest part, I, the pre, uh, the pastor part, I like the He's got claws like a bear. Yeah. I like that part. Describing um, Satan. Right. Um, but Michael Balaam, uh, he was a, like an opera singer, wasn't he? Well, yeah, he was um, a theatrical performer. Boy, was he theatrical. He chewed up the scenery in that endowment movie, didn't he? I loved, I loved that film just because of him. He did it really well. Do you think so? Because every time if he did his big thing and, this day. And, the, <laughs> and he makes his big exit, right? Or he's, you know, threatening the, all the people in the, in yeah, the audience. These that people big don't live up well, to just, these covenants I mean, on this day. What, the way the way the people the the Satans before him uh, delivered their lines sounded almost like they were reading their lines. Yes, they were very he, cardboard. Yeah, when he did his lines, he he was right on. I just well, he went he went over the top. He played uh, the flamboyant, flaming Satan. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. And every time you got done with a line, I would have this voice in my head would say, ooh, what a ham. <laughs> there he is. And he looks very nice there in that nice eight by 10 black and white glossy photograph. We love you, Michael. We wish you could still be Satan. All right. Any other phone calls? Yeah, we've got our last one. This will be our last one. You're not going to believe it. It's the backyard professor, uh, Carrie Shirts. Carrie, you're on Mormonism Live. What do you think of tonight's episode, my friend? I, I thought it was really fun. You guys are a lot of fun. And Cheryl, it's so good to see you again. How you been? <laughs> I'm loving your book. Hey, I have a question. Uh, from a good friend of mine, T.O., and he, he actually asked us this question when I was interviewing you, Cheryl, and I never saw it, and I never got to it. So I'm going to ask this question because I actually find it an interesting question, and if you have some insight, that would be great. I'm not quite sure what to think about this, but we'll go with it. What do you think of Joseph Smith's endowment being more Rosicrucian while Brigham Young's endowment was more Masonic. Um, you know, it's very difficult to separate. In my mind, it's very difficult to separate Joseph Smith's endowment and Brigham Young's endowment. We don't really know um, exactly what influence Brigham Young had or exactly what he added, exactly what, you know, I'm very unclear in my mind. I, I do I do feel that um, Joseph Smith's endowment did have, we know that it did have the signs of tokens, the handshakes, that kind of thing wasn't simply added by Brigham Young. That was um, Joseph Smith's influence. He also had the, um, the ritual part where you go through um, this, this like play um, kind of thing. He had pictures and he had a garden with, plants all around and that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know if I can really answer that question. I don't know that, um, that Joseph Smith's, um, influence was more Rosicrucian. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I don't have the information. We don't have a lot of no, information on that. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's all good. It will give T.O. and I a chance to research that we've kind of talked a little bit about this and we're gonna look into it a little bit more also i just Great. wanted to say you should mention you should also mention that secret cipher on the dust jacket <laughs> someone else brought it up oh it's mr natural he said i figured out how to crack the secret code but i haven't cracked it yet yeah yeah <laughs> sure sure mr natural i cracked i cracked it so you can Terry <laughs> has there's been two people so far that have let me know that they um have deciphered the Royal Arch cipher on the um book cover. So let me know if you're able to figure it out. You know, Mosiah, yeah, and I think yeah. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hey Carrie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. How are you? Arthur? This is my way of interrupting. Um but Mosiah had put early on, when you put up that triangle with the tetragrammaton in the middle and the, the cipher around the edges, he says in the upper right, that's electric light orchestra. And the reason <laughs> that was funny is because that's exactly what I had said <laughs> to Cheryl just minutes before we went live. When we put that up on the screen, I said, oh, that's ELO, electric light orchestra. I can read that. ELO, right on. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, tonight's show was excellent, you guys. It, it was 
it was fun to see so many interesting graphics and uh i think the uh the group the chat group room really kind of lit up when you started talking about the uh marrow in the bones idea that also was extremely um i actually helped sell three copies of your book tonight cheryl it's my way of saying yes i love you girl you're awesome <laughs> so well thank you so Carrie. Mr. Natural, on a roll. mr natural asks how he can contact me i'm on facebook so find me on facebook cheryl l bruno beautiful nice carrie i've got a question for you before okay. you go mi amigo carrie sure Okay, how can we have yeah, 448 people watching the show and only five likes? Is it really that bad? Or do people just not know how to hit that like button? <laughs> On yours or mine? Mine. Right now, I'm talking to you in real time as I'm looking at the screen. 455 people right now watching. Six likes. So it went up from five. It went up one more. So somebody heard. Somebody went up there and smashed the like button. Hey, hey, I see 133, and that's more likes than my videos get views, so don't knock it. Now there's a reason for that, Carrie. Oh, now it's now it's now it's going up. Yes, Way because you are so much more handsome than I am. <laughs> oh no, no, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Believe me. So no, I've got a no, face hey, for radio. I I have. I ha that's true. I have a new series potentially in the making with Dan Vogel coming up. I just want to put a quick shout out. Maybe in the next couple of weeks, we'll start a new series. We'll see. But he mentioned it in the chat and I'm taking him up on it. So love it. I knew some fun. kind of promotion. You was guys coming. are so inspirational. Colby cool. says you yeah, have to well, refresh, you guys Boomer. Are... What? Colby says to RFM, I assume, you have to refresh, Boomer. Oh, <laughs> it, those might only RFM. be Facebook, by the, the way. Those oh, nine might Facebook. be on Facebook. Maybe I yeah, can't they, see what's happening on the um, the YouTube side of things. If you look oh. at it, if you if you hold your cursor they, over those marks, you'll see that it says like Facebook likes, Facebook loves. Oh, and it, it tells does. you who gave them. Yep. Oh, yeah. Thank you, everybody. I can see your names now. And if you hold it over the eyeball, yeah. you'll see now that I, most people watch via YouTube. Wow, that is really, really. Yeah, Marvin I Jensen, I didn't know he liked the show. That's cool. Look at that. So here's the other thing. Everybody Carrie, while you're still there, Carrie. Yeah. I yeah. have heard from a mutual friend who claims to be well-informed, and I think he is. He's a professor of classics that you may know, whose name we're not going to mention, mention here. But he says <laughs> that... When you compare Joseph Smith's endowment with Brigham Young's endowment, one of the things that Brigham Young added were the characters Peter, James, and John to the endowment because it was important for Brigham Young, believe it or not, to establish apostles as being the heads of the church. Had you heard that, Carrie? Oh, okay. So very um, interesting. Yes, I I just heard it just now by you. That's interesting. What does Cheryl think? Yeah, I mean, I um, I happen to believe that, but I don't have any evidence to um, to show that that's true. I, you know, we do not have evidence that that was added by Brigham Young, but um, I think it's a good uh, supposition, and I believe it myself. But really, 
folks. We just do not have the historical evidence yeah. to show what exactly Brigham added and what he didn't. It is possible. We do have evidence that Brigham Young and those around him did add things. Um, right. So we Brigham said that, that himself. Yeah. 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 But there we're kind of left guessing. Right. We know what it is later well, on, guess, but we I don't guess. know much about it, what it was in Joseph Smith's day. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's my understanding, but very little I know. So yeah, that'll work. And there's a gentleman on the uh, chat named flat Pat who just said that Dan Vogel thinks I'm a bore and I would probably second that. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I will try to build up the excitement more and be more exciting. But after all, I do yell too much in my podcast and videos. So, you know, I'm not as professional as you guys are. So I do too much loud laughter. So If you were any more exciting, and Carrie, if you were any more exciting, you would have an aneurysm. That's what I was going to say myself. (laughs) You are a man, as I have described you to many people, Carrie. Carrie, as I've described you to many people, you are a man of many enthusiasms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean well, that in a good you. way. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Good, because That's I mean it as a compliment. I appreciate that. Well, I will keep it up. Thanks, Carrie. I'm, I'm just taking after you guys. Okay, thanks, you guys. Take appreciate it easy. You. Check out the Backyard Professor. Yeah, check out the Backyard Professor on Sundays. I does, he does his live show almost every Sunday. And, and um, pretty much every other day and time in <laughs> He does a lot of them, doesn't he? He's got one regularly <laughs> scheduled, and he throws in five yeah. others just to He does to like three or four a week, yeah. I, I just want to note this picture. I mean, we ought to acknowledge that the washings and anointings were – a little bit of a me too moment back in the day, you know, it was a little more, a little people. I think, I think you got completely undressed and you know, that kind of stuff happened. The, the washing and anointing in that bathtub. Somebody asked why it wasn't on oxen. Cause that's not the baptism for the dead. That's the washing is an anointings uh, done in the early, uh, early temple. So yeah, I just want to know, is that a rubber hose in the background hanging over that doorknob? Man, I don't, I don't know if it's a flogger. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. <laughs> it might be a siphon. Maybe a hose uh, used for a siphon. And, and just FYI, sure, I did buy a copy of your book while uh, while we were during doing the podcast. So yay! Um, I I don't I don't yeah I I think people should get it. It's it looks like it's great, and I'm excited to have mine come in because I've got a few books on masonry, but not the stuff you covered tonight. So good job, my friend. Very good. Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been fantastic having you here and preparing and getting to talk with you about these things. It's been wonderful. It was a lot of fun. I think, I hope everybody else has enjoyed it as much as I have. And so we're going to leave it now. And uh, Bill, do you want to say anything by way of good night? Just simply, um, I think this show is the best in the business at laying out these fun historical topics and, and covering newsworthy stuff going on in the moment. Folks, support Mormonism Live. Go to mormonismlive.org. Click the donate button, send us whatever. Five bucks a month is what I always ask people for. The folks who send more, we're deeply grateful for. Uh, a lot of folks donate to, to our uh, umbrella and to this show specifically. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. But, uh, you know, for those who watch this and get value of it and tune in every week, you know, if, please consider if you're not donating, please consider sending a few bucks. And please buy Cheryl's book. I, I just think it covers ground that no one else up to this point is really put in one place. So, uh, and probably no place at all for the most part. So thank you very much, Cheryl. Yes. Thank you again, Cheryl. Thank you everybody for watching until next week. By the way, we hope to have back for part two next week. 
Tyler, with no last name, to finish off his conversation with Elder Bednar at the LAX Airport Delta Sky Club Lounge. We'll finish that off next week. He has texted me. We've been in communication. There's been a lot of comments about the show. He wants to thank everybody who's made comments about the show, whether it's positive or or, uh, critical or whatever. He's found that all of those comments are helpful to him. And so he just wanted me to pass along that he's very grateful for that. And he looks forward to seeing you all on Mormonism Live next Wednesday. Thanks and again, everybody. I don't, I don't know if you want to spread that other little secret, but there's some other information maybe that's what happening sometime soon. What, what are uh, you talking any requ- about? Like a document request or anything? Can everybody just mute themselves so Bill and I can talk privately? Just a, just a document request maybe? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that Bonnie Corden thing. Yeah, they're, they're so, fulfilling that request as we speak. Yes, I had submitted a request to the Orange County uh, Sheriff's Office in Florida, which is the county where uh, little Derek passed away and where all the Suddenly investigation yeah, yeah. Uh, was done. And um, so it's done electronically. It's done online. I submitted a request. It was assigned a number. Uh, they've got a pretty neat system and I could see that mine was way down here and there are all these people who are ahead of me chronologically in order and they do it first come first serve. And I went and checked there. I think it was Monday. It was so two days ago and my request had been moved to the top and it's open, which means that they're working on it currently. So hopefully in the next few days, they'll have completed that and I'll have whatever it is that they Uh, provide to me, which we will make available to everybody and maybe do a special episode about the contents of those reports, if they're worth sharing, which I think they will be. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned. 